0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And, once again, I would like to thank Samuel G. who made a direct donation to the Salon to help with some of our expenses. Thanks a lot, Samuel. I I really appreciate your continuing support. Well, as you know if you've been listening to some of my recent podcasts, in a couple of days I'm going to be heading to Orcas Island, Washington to participate in the Imagine Music and Arts Festival. And in addition to hanging out and meeting as many people as I can, on Saturday I'll be making a presentation titled Psychedelics in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. And uh, if all goes well, I'll be able to play a recording of that talk here in the Salon a little later this year. Also, uh, as you know, the 2018 Burning Man Festival has now come to a conclusion and thousands of, uh, I'm sure, very tired and dusty revelers are slowly making their way home, where, uh, well, it's probably going to take a while for them to get back into the swing of the default world. But once that recovery period is over, I expect to receive recordings of some of the Plank and Norte lectures that were held this year, and uh, to play them for us here in the Salon. Now, speaking of festivals, back in the summer of 2016, Just after that year's Glastonbury Festival, I received an email from fellow saloner Paul Harley, who attached recordings of talks that were given there by Dr. David Nutt and by Graham Hancock. Now, at the time, I was in the middle of several other projects, and due to my inability to get organized, well, Paul's uh, email and recordings kind of slipped through the cracks. But fortunately, I recently found them, and so we're going to get to listen to these talks now, uh, just a couple of years late. I'm sorry about that, Paul, but as my mother often said, better late than never. So I'm going to do what uh, I'm thinking of as sort of a double album here in the salon and podcast David Nutt's presentation right now, and then in two days I'll podcast Graham Hancock's talk since the next day I'll be leaving for Orcas and won't be able to post a program next week. Now if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you're already familiar with Dr. David Nutt because I talked about him on numerous occasions, uh, particularly back in 2008 and 2009. Back then, Dr. Nutt was the chairman of the UK's Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs and as such, was one of the most senior people in the British government who was working on educating the rest of us about drugs, psychoactive drugs in particular. And in doing so, Dr. Nutt published a paper in which he cited numerous statistics that proved that taking MDMA was safer than horseback riding. (laughs) And for that he got fired from his post as the government's top advisor about these substances. Well, back at that time, the dope fiend and I were exchanging ideas here in our podcast, and the dope fiend even uh, interviewed Dr. Nutt for his dopecast. And uh, so we were all very much up to speed with the trials and tribulations of Dr. Nutt. But now, almost a decade has passed since he was ushered out of his government post. And, uh, in fact, two years have passed since this talk at Glastonbury was given. However, as you will now hear, the words and wisdom of Dr. David Nutt remain both important and provocative yet today. So now here's Dr. David Nutt speaking to some like-minded souls at the 2016 Glastonbury Festival. So,
1: so the first thing to say is I'm a psychiatrist, and as I like to tell people, they're like Nutt. There are not many jobs in medicine that are fitting. <laughs> the men amongst you will realize that there is no one. But, uh, pretend not to go there. Um, and I've always been interested in the brain, and uh, it seemed to me that, like most of you, the brain is uh, something that you cherish, and you uh, would probably like to understand more, but you'd also like to optimize, like to, to know how best to make your brain do the things that would be useful for you. Um, and, and one of the most uh, interesting and profound insights that I had in the... Uh, in my life was uh, when I was about 15. And my father, who was a wise man, a, um, a civil servant, uh, not an academic, but uh, a father of the war, so he, he didn't go to university, but he was extremely clever. And uh, he was reading a book one day, and I came home from the or something, and he said, you should read this. And this was a description by a man called Robert Hoffman. Presumably you've all heard of Albert Hoffman. And it was Hoffman's description of how he accidentally petted. ...a small dose of a substance called LSD into his mouth when he was working on it as a medicinal LSD. And, uh, and that was a very important message because, of course, in those days, still at school, we were doing mouth petting like he did. But that's all gone now, so we won't have any accidents like that in the future. However, Hoffman's accident was quite interesting because he was expecting, I think, nothing, but experienced a, a very profound alteration in consciousness... And his description that was really intriguing to me was not the fact that the world seemed different or that uh, music was louder or more melodic or more important, but it was his description of how it, the cycle home, his normal 30-minute cycle home seemed to take seven hours. And I remember thinking at that time, well, that is intriguing, isn't it? So if, obviously the brain works at what time is, and if a drug like LSD can change the way the brain perceives time, this has got to be a really important tool for studying brain mechanisms. If you want to understand timekeeping, then you, know, you probably should give people LSD and see how well they register time. And, um, and so those of you who go to work late regularly, you may just have some differences in those receptors, etc., that LSD work on. And, and, and I was so intrigued by the... Uh, that insight, that uh, I went back to school and I started talking to my teachers. And, uh, and they said, we don't talk about that here. Oh, I said, okay, why is that? And they said, well, because it's illegal now. So I started asking, well, why is LSD illegal when it's such an interesting tool to study the brain? And of course, they couldn't give me an answer, and, and um, nor can anyone else. anyone got the answer? Yeah, okay. There is no reason why LSD is illegal, other than the fact that um, and the American government uh, decreed it should be illegal, and that rather irritated me because I've never been—I've never been one to believe that uh, politicians really had any better insights into life than we have. And in fact, in my 20 years of working with them, I know now I was right—they uh, have a lot less insight. Um, So then a few months later, we had a show and tell at uh, at the school. I was at Bristol Grammar School. Any Bristol Grammar School people here? No, they're still studying for their A levels. I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, uh, and uh, the, so we had a chemistry labs were open, and I went along. and I'd made a molecular model of LSD, which I put up. This is the. This is the. Because we're talking now about 1967, and with the the whole of the Haight Ashbury. Uh, don't look so confused. If hate at her, if her, Someone needs to tell them what hate, at, hate at, Yeah, San Francisco, the summer of love in 1967. Hate Ashbury was the place where American young Americans went to to listen to the Grateful Dead and to uh, to take LSD because they didn't want to fight this war in Vietnam. So the whole the whole nature of music and art and and to some extent politics was changing at that time. And. Uh, Anyway, I showed my molecule and everyone else was showing things like benzene or ethanol. And uh, I thought a thought little more about it then. But then a few years later, when I became a psychiatrist, I started working with people who were psychotic. And of course, there's been a theory for a long time that psychosis could be caused by uh, something in the brain that is rather like LSD. Because one of the experiences of psychedelic drugs like LSD is to make your brain work rather differently, to give you uh, altered perceptions of, of vision or hearing or thinking. And uh, there's been a long-standing theory that LSD could actually mimic psychosis. And, and that got me interested in the whole question of, uh, of can we use drugs to explore not only things like the nature of timekeeping, but also to make, maybe model Psychosis, so we can perhaps look for novel treatments, because we have treatments for psychosis, but um, the reality is there, there's only one kind of treatment, although there are many different drugs. They all work in the same way. And they're not wonderfully good. They are good for some people, but they don't help everyone. And they also have a lot of side effects. And In fact, something we are doing now, just as an aside, is we are doing a study using psilocybin, magic mushroom juice, to produce effects in the brain which are sort of similar to psychosis, to look for new kinds of approaches to drugs that might help people. The reality is, though, that um, uh, when we look at the nature of uh, psychedelic experiences in the brain, we know now that drugs like LSD and the precursors, drugs like psilocybin, and going back even further uh, to uh, drugs like um, ayahuasca. We know that they all work on a serotonin receptor in the brain. And uh, there was a lot of hope back in the 70s that if LSD was causing psychosis, if we could block the receptor it worked at, then we could potentially have a new treatment. Unfortunately, that failed. That approach failed. It hasn't completely died because, interestingly, just a few months ago, a, a new treatment for a kind of psychosis which you see in people with Parkinson's disease has been, has been um, licensed in the USA based on blocking those receptors, those 5-HC receptors that NSD works on. So, so it's not been a fruitless exercise, but it certainly hasn't transformed the, the way in which we think about psychosis. But of course, over the last next twenty years or so, the whole role of things like uh, receptors, like serotonin receptors, in other disorders became much, much more understood, particularly in disorders like depression, anxiety, and stress. And that's where this field does really get quite interesting now, because uh, when you look at the action of, of psychedelic drugs to stimulate these receptors, you see that they may, in in, in some ways. Replicate or even sup- surpass the impact of more traditional drugs like antidepressants on these receptors. And that's actually one area where our research is going at present. Because some of you may know that we uh, reported just a few months ago, and it's a freely available online. If you just search nut and psilocybin, you'll find a paper in Lancet Psychiatry just a few months ago where we did for the first time an experiment where we took people who had difficult to treat depression. Their depression had failed to respond to two conventional treatments, usually two different sorts of antidepressants, but in fact all but one of them had had psychotherapy as well. And then we gave them a single psychedelic experience with psilocybin. The dose was 25 milligrams, a fairly big dose, and they had quite a profound experience, lasting three to four hours. And most of them, not everyone, but most of them felt quite a lot better. And, uh, and some of them have stayed well. Some of them have stayed well now. We've done a six-month follow-up, and some of them have stayed well for nearly six months. And that was really the first uh, controlled trial of these drugs, uh, or any of these kind of drugs, for the treatment of, uh, of Depression. But one not the first people to think of that, in fact, um, the main point of my talk is, I'm gonna get onto now, which is that we have resurrected this kind of research, which was being done quite extensively back in the 1950s and 60s. And we've done it um, because, as I've already shown you, it makes sense to do it. And it is rather, well, it's distressing. And actually, I think it's actually insulting and it's outrageous, really, that, science and medicine and you people haven't been allowed to to access this kind of approach simply because of the politics that surrounds uh, psychedelics. So that's what I want to talk about for the rest of my talk, but we can take questions on on the medicine later. So let's go back in history. You could argue that we Modern Western society is the only society in the history of humanity that has not used mind-altering drugs and encouraged the use of mind-altering drugs, and and that's rather humbling, I think. So you look, you can you can see cultures going, uh, native cultures in both the Americas. The word shaman, shaman is a Siberian word for. Uh, Wise people who would use uh, another kind of mushroom than psilocybin, the Amanita muscaris mushroom in Siberia to produce changes in mood and mental state. Uh, Clearly, Hindu religion, any religion that's got six armed gods, they were using something. It was called Soma, and it was probably um, a combination of... uh, of psilocybin and ephedra, the stimulant ephedra. So cultures uh, forever have used it. And perhaps the most important one, of course, are the ancient Greeks. And if I had a slide, I'd show you this wonderful slide uh, of uh, a Greek vase, which dates back to something like 1500 years BC. And the ancient Greeks were very well aware of the therapeutic as well as recreational value of many drugs, they really popularized and developed the, the way of cultivating and preserving wine. But they knew, like most of you do, that wine is not enough. And every year, when, towards the end of the summer, when the Jews started getting a bit heavier, the, the interestingly, a bit like you, the Athenian intellectuals and intelligentsia, would instead of coming to Glastonbury, they would go north. It was a lot drier there, interestingly. So it was called the Elysian Fields. So the Champs Elysées in Paris is named after the Elysian Fields, which are north of Athens. And the Greek intelligentsia went north from Athens to the Elysian Fields. Because in those fields, they were growing, or growing on the rye and the barley that they were cultivating there was a fungus called ergot. And they knew that if they ate the ergot they would get high. So they would go with their, the gift of Dionysius, the god Dionysius, who was the god of alcohol. They'd take their urns of wine, and they would go and they would drink wine, and they'd chew on the ergot fungus, and they would have a wonderful experience. So wonderful that they recreated it on their, the images on their pottery, which is how we know about it today. And the reason they did that was actually in many ways the same reason as you come here. They wanted to escape from the city, they wanted to spend time in the country, but they also wanted to have a different way of thinking. They wanted to change their thought processes so they could go back and carry on doing the same stuff they did before, but perhaps better. They kind of wanted to cleanse their mind. They wanted to, t- to make themselves better, improved, different. And you think, well, that sounds like tr- quite a good idea, really, doesn't it, you know? Yeah, what should we do today, dear? Well, let's go up to the Elysian Fields and uh, have a couple of days, you know, drinking and taking psychedelics. And then what? Well, we'll come back, and then we'll build democracy. You know, that would be a good thing to do. Wouldn't it? And and uh, and they did, and they and they wrote. Of course, they developed concepts which still underpin our society today. The you know, uh, concepts of literature and art, etc. So we know that these drugs, if used appropriately in a socially acceptable way, can have huge benefits to society. In fact, you know, you could argue, I'm not sure I'd go this far, but you could argue that Western society is built out of that kind of experience that the Greeks may well have gotten from, from taking psychedelics. So where did it all go wrong? Well, it, 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 that's a really quite difficult question to answer, but I suppose we have to blame the Romans because they took over Greece and they, they were rather more militaristic and... Um, a bit more sort of rudimentary in terms of their perspectives on life, and they like fighting rather than thinking. And to some extent, the the subsequent two thousand years have been uh, uh, limited in terms of people's access to these drugs and to the knowledge of these drugs. And we've tended to rely on alcohol. And of course, alcohol is is a great drug. You know, we you I guess we've all used it, yes, yeah? yeah, yes. A few of you haven't, you maybe. Sometimes I give this talk, and there are some people who've never used alcohol, but there there are relatively few. Alcohol is is pervasive in our society. It has been for a very long time. And one of the problems with alcohol, one of the reasons alcohol is so pervasive, is that it figures so strongly in the Bible. In fact, as hopefully you will know, I mean, I'll give you an example. The reason alcohol was so powerful in in ancient times was was rather, uh, it's rather shown by what's in the floor in front of us. In those days, if you drank water like this, you'd probably die. Whereas wine was one way of keeping water in a way, a manner which was actually safe, because the alcohol killed the bugs in it. So alcohol has been life-saving in terms of providing a drinking, uh, a drinking fluid. But of course, alcohol has also become part of our, part of the symbolism of our religion. So Christian religion has used alcohol. You know, the wedding at Cana. What did Jesus do? Well. He made the wedding go well because he turned water into wine. Because wine, you know, the tradition of uh, Jewish weddings at the time was to, to have wine to celebrate. And the church then, of course, uh, took that. It took that accepted uh, uh, drug and it turned it into part of the religious ceremonies. Uh, you know, I mean, if you take communion, you in both, you know, all i uh, certainly Catholic and, and Anglican. Communion, you drink wine, and whether you believe that's the body, the blood of Christ, or it's a symbolic you know, it doesn't matter. The fact is, the Church has had a hegemony on drugs for the last uh, two thousand years, and the Church has evolved into the drinks industry, which started with the Church, and then became a, a separate industry. And the drinks industry is extremely keen to k- keep its monopoly over drugs, and it's fought uh, battles over the last. 150 years, to make sure that no other drug really got on the market. When accessible versions of drugs like opium and cannabis and cocaine became available to the public, systematically the drinks industry has cl- uh, created opposition to them, created fear about them, and eventually got them banned. So, for, So the re- well, as I say, the reason we as a of a society that doesn't use mind altering drugs is largely because of the, the pressure that the drinks industry put on politicians to maintain their stranglehold on, uh, on the control of these substances. And that's extremely, well, it, that's immoral, personally, I think, I don't, I don't see it, it, it can be any justification for limiting people's access to substances that change their mind. Particularly not if you do it on the pretext of harm. And this of course is where the whole story gets extremely murky. Uh, it, it, most of the justification for keeping drugs illegal is because supposedly they're harmful. But as you know, and hopefully some of you have read some of my work over the years, most of the so-called illegal drugs are less harmful than alcohol. And that's, therefore, wrong, you know, that is so scientifically that the, the, the justification for that illegality, illegality is wrong. And, of course, it was my protesting the government's continued uh, resistance, or well, intransigence to uh, having a rational drug policy that eventually got me sacked as their advisor in 2009. And there's an interesting sort of... And when you, when you look at the, the three pillars that underpin the, uh, the restrictive attitude and the very hostile attitude that society has to drugs, you see there, are, see there are politicians. Most of the politicians know that drug policies in this country are wrong. Many of the drugs ministers have said so, but they only say it when they've left office. They never say it when they're in office. But we know that probably the majority of politicians know that they're lying about drugs. It's probably because they know they're lying about most things, but that's a that kind of story. Um, and then, of course, we've got, the, uh, the, as I said, the drinks industry. The drinks industry has been systematic, it's particularly in the last 30 years, in trying to prevent access of cannabis and drugs like MDMA to any kind of legal market, because they're terrified that will undermine their, um, their profitability. And then the third, the third arm in this, this rather dangerous and very effective opposition have been the media. And there are, we have a peculiar media in this country. I don't know. Some of, you look, some of you look rather young. You probably don't even know what a newspaper is. But believe me, there are such things. And they have a lot of influence amongst older people, particularly older voters. And newspapers such as The Mail and The Sun and The Telegraph have systematically try to create hysteria about drugs. And they've done it for the last 30 or 40 years and they continue to do it. And that's why we have the Psychoactive Substances Act, which I'll talk about in a minute. So newspapers, politicians and the drinks industry together are a very, a very disturbing uh, and very powerful coalition. And they and they really have held us back. And there are a lot of people who've been punished and prosecuted um, because they've dare to challenge that authority. But beyond that, there's a whole other story, and this is really the key of my talk, which is that not only have we, by trying to uh, regulate recreational use of these drugs, uh, unfairly criminalised a lot of people. There are a million young people in this country, probably a few of you in this audience, again, judging by the smell, you have got criminal records for smoking cannabis. But we created an underclass. Actually, truth is, The cannabis underclass probably can't afford to come here so because when you this million people who've got criminal records for cannabis possession they they don't have work jobs they really struggle to get to get work and they are extremely disadvantaged but beyond that we've created uh, another underclass of people who've got medical problems for which they cannot get access to treatments and almost all the so-called illegal drugs that the newspapers know the names of or can spell. Cannabis, MDMA, LSD. I was going to say psilocybin, but I don't think they can spell that. But but those drugs that are illegal today all have huge medical potential. And to deny access of patients to their therapeutic possibilities, it's, I just, it's, it's, even if these drugs were dangerous, it would be outrageous to deny patients who should be allowed to make their own minds up about the relative risk benefit. But when these drugs aren't dangerous, when you have a drug like cannabis, which is safer than alcohol, to deny it to patients, to break down the doors of people with multiple sclerosis, to just to find that they've got some cannabis and to prosecute them, is happens on a regular basis, to my mind, it's... it's well, it's ridiculous. It's actually, as a taxpayer, it's insulting. Why should my money go to giving police overtime so they can smash people's doors down at six in the morning? I don't want my tax money spent on that. And why should these people, who have got no other records other than to a so-called illegal drug, why should they be subject to that kind of harassment? What, what, did, what kind of society does that? And, and why do they do it? And of course. As I've said, i told you why they do it. They do it because politically uh, it's powerful. The people that take drugs tend not to vote, so it doesn't matter if you lose their votes. There's a powerful lobby against them through the drinks industry. And also now, and even more so probably, depending on what happens in the the, the restructuring of the Conservative Party after the Brexit, it may become even more right-wing. There's a strong American puritanical influence funding uh, groups in Britain, particularly the so-called Centre for Social Justice that Ian Duncan Smith runs. This Centre for Social Justice has funding from uh, so, somewhat arm's length from American charities which drive, derive their income from, from the defence and military industry. And their ambition is to make sure that uh, the world becomes or stays as much American as it can. And, and that is truly, that isn't democracy at all. And we really need to make sure we don't fall prey to the simple semantics. I mean, it's great, isn't it? Why would you not have a centre for social justice? But what they mean by social justice is you've got to do what they say. And that really is not do anything other than drink alcohol. And where does this really come from? Well, it comes from uh, an interesting period in our life, which I've already alluded to, the 1960s and uh, the the Vietnam War. Because the reason LSD is illegal is because it was changing the way people viewed the war. Now, again, I'm looking around here. A lot of you weren't even born. Some of you weren't even thought of before the Vietnam War. But anyway, the Vietnam War was the war, the last war the Americans fought to try to maintain the world order through uh, their military might. And they fought it in Vietnam, which is why it's called the Vietnam War. And uh, that's the place over in Southeast Asia, uh, which most Americans didn't know about. They didn't even know where it was. But they were young American men, your sort of age, were being told to go and fight. And initially there was uh, voluntary service, and then so many were getting killed that people wouldn't volunteer anymore. So then the American government decided it had to have conscription. So basically, if you were over 18 and you're... (laughs) And I remember this vividly. I remember on the television watching this. If you were born on an odd day of the week, an odd day, if your birthday was an odd day of the month, you'd get conscripted and you could go to a foreign country that you'd never heard of really, or at least you didn't know where it was, and you'd live in a very... in a jungle, being eaten by mosquitoes and cockroaches, being shot at by an enemy that you didn't ever see, fighting for a cause you didn't understand. uh, And... It's not surprising that many young Americans said, I I don't want to do this. And then they went to Haight-Ashbury, they went to San Francisco, they dropped acid, they listened to the Grateful Dead, and they thought, this is a better world. I actually don't want to be a soldier, I don't want to be in the military, I don't want to kill people for for no reason at all, other than they have a different belief system than me. And LSD was the first drug to be banned simply because it changed people's perception. Because even then, the Americans could not ban a drug just because they didn't like it. So they had to create hysteria about it. And they did. The American press was remarkable, even better than The Sun, in creating hysteria. They created ridiculous levels of hysteria about LSD. It's not even clear to me whether anyone ever died of LSD. We know, obviously, that even back in the 60s, Tens of thousands of people were dying from alcohol and tobacco every year. But the American government decided to collude with the newspapers, create hysterical stories. Woman gives birth to a frog, LSD fed ape rapes TV actress, you know, sort of utterly absurd kinds of headlines like that. And you might say this is laughable. It's laughable that anyone could change the law based on such ridiculous and absurd. Uh, forces. Well, that's what they did then. And that's what we have just done now. Some of you know? Yes, May the 27th, this country, your country, the country that you voted the for, you voted into power, the Conservative Party. This country has done something that no other country in the world has ever done. It has banned any drug that changes your mind whether that drug exists today or whether it will ever be made in the future, irregardless of whether it's harmful or not. I mean, do you know that? The Psychoactive Substances Act became law on the 27th of May and essentially everything's illegal. I think even holding your breath for more than 30 seconds to get high <laughs> is illegal. And, and, and it's hard to talk about this without kind of, kind of gagging, really. How can, a, how can a, a country like ours, which has got a tradition of liberty and scientific endeavor, how can it do something as utterly, utterly controlling as that? And the answer is very simple. The answer is because the sun told them to. The sun created hysteria. Has, over the last two or three years, created hysteria around the use of nitrous oxide. The reason it's done that is because footballers use nitrous oxide. Footballers use nitrous oxide because it's the only drug they can't be tested for. So they're not as dumb as you think sometimes, are they? But the sun didn't get hysterical when Prince Harry used nitrous oxide. But it got very hysterical when Raheem Sterling used nitrous oxide. And the Sun has had a campaign over the last few years to get nitrous oxide banned based on the fact that footballers use it. But banning nitrous oxide was difficult. Uh, they also, of course, there have been other legal highs such as methadron and um, other stimulants and also synthetic cannabinoids have come along. And those have all been grouped together as in the term legal highs. And the campaign to get rid of them has led to a law which bans everything other than alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine. And that's outrageous. It's truly outrageous. And when I speak to friends around the world, they say, you must be joking. You can't ban things that don't exist, but you can, and we have. And and the the reality is anything that affects your brain now, whether it's being discovered and used for treating illness or treat or recreational use, is de facto illegal. Because that's what the government said. And that's going to have a massively deleterious effect on research. Because it's been really difficult to do research with psychedelics now. They're illegal. Our psilocybin study. So we managed in the end to treat 20 patients with psilocybin. It took us uh, two and a half years to go through all the regulations. To get psilocybin to uh, give to our patients. Each dose of psilocybin ended up costing £1,500. Now, there is no drug in the world that's that good. Why is that? Because when I work with psilocybin, I am treated as a criminal. They assume that, as are all my colleagues, it's not just me, no, I mean it's... We have to have special police checks. Only four hospitals in Britain are allowed to hold cannabis because it's deemed as too dangerous. If I'm a doctor. I can prescribe heroin, which is massively more dangerous. You know, 1,300 deaths a year from heroin, no deaths from cannabis, but I can prescribe cannabis because I'm a doctor. Uh, heroin because I'm a doctor but I can't do anything with cannabis, because it's controlled as a Schedule One drug, like MDMA, like psilocybin. This is utterly, utterly stupid. It's a waste of your money, because you funded my research, thankfully, or at least those of you who pay taxes. Yes. And it's, it holds the field back. We are the first people in 50 years to have done a study with LSD in this country. We did it. Thank you. Thank you. We did it, people say, why did you do it? And the answer is, because it had to be done. You know, you can't have a drug which changed the world. You can't have the only drug to be banned because it changed the way people think and not understand what it does in the brain. And of course, the study's been remarkable. We've understood the nature of hallucinations now. We've understood the nature of the change in ego, the sense of becoming part of the universe that these drugs produce, and you'll hear about for the next speaker. We can now show you a brain map that makes sense of this? And I think that's critical. Because we, we cannot win the argument about drugs by relying on common sense. We've, you've seen that. We can't even now win the moral argument. This government has told us that taking drugs is immoral unless you take alcohol. Any other psychoactive drug other than alcohol that changes the way you feel is illegal. So that's they've made that moral decision. They told us it's not based on harm anymore, it's based on morality. So we can't win the moral argument. The only way we can win the argument is through science. We have to show them, scientists like me, have to show them that the science is really worthwhile. That the science underpins the potential therapeutic value. And at the very least, these drugs should be made available for medical treatment and research. And whether they go into recreation use or not, who cares? Because the reality is they're not dangerous anyway. Thank you very much. So if we we've got fifteen minutes or so for questions, if people want to ask, yes, down here. Yeah. So the question is, if I, am yeah, they asked me that question in the I'm Independent yesterday, but I couldn't write it. I mean, I, I had a site domestic. My mother died yesterday, unfortunately. So um, so I'm not staying. I'm just come to give this talk, and then I'm going to go home and sort things out. But they asked me to do that, but I will do it, and I'll tell you what I'd do. What I'd say. I'd say that the reality is this. The question was, if I was prime minister. I'd be better than Boris, anyway. Um. What would I do? What I'd do is very straightforward. I would apply science, I'd apply rational approach to drugs, I would use good policy which we have seen developed elsewhere in the world. We've got good models now. It's not that we're going into the dark by saying make medical cannabis available. Two-thirds of Americans That's 220 million people. The richest people in the world have access to medicinal cannabis. But in Britain we don't. Why don't we have access to medicinal cannabis? Because the Drugs Minister thinks if we had medicinal cannabis, it would encourage you not to use cannabis. Some of you clearly aren't taking notes. I would say this. I would say based on the knowledge we have of drug harms, drugs which are less harmful to the user that alcohol should be available. They should be available in a regulated fashion, and I say that for two reasons. I say that for the moral reason: why should you, those of you, what strength is that you're drinking? What's that, Magnus? Yeah, you see, that's like a half a joint. You know, you've got to be very careful. <laughs> if drink alcohol kills twenty-six thousand people a year in Britain, death, a lot of them young people. So anything that's less harmful to the user than alcohol, I think we have a moral right to make available, and we should definitely ban wine boxes. Now those are, ext- see that's... yes, we should limit the sale of alcohol to small um, uh, units. Um, so there's a the moral argument, but there's also the health argument that I believe that if people had access to safe to drugs such as cannabis and such as MDMA or other stimulants in uh, nitrous oxide even in quantities, it wouldn't harm them. We would actually have less harm. Alcohol is a hugely expensive drug. It costs $6 billion or more a year just to police drunkenness. and not here, obviously, but on the, on the streets of our cities. So I think we should have a regulated market. We should control alcohol. I think alcohol is too cheap. It's, what you're drinking is... You're, drinking, you're paying a third the price I paid when I was a student for alcohol, and that's why consumption's gone up. Last year in Britain, there was a 6% increase in mortality in women from alcohol. 6% in one year in mortality. Alcohol is the leading cause of death in men under 50 in this country, and it will be the leading cause of death in women under 50 by the end of this decade. So we have to control alcohol, and the way to control alcohol is to give people access to safer drugs, not to stop access to other drugs. So that's what I do. But drugs which are more harmful to the user than alcohol, so drugs like heroin, crack, cocaine, I would still keep illegal, hoping, that sensible people like you would then switch to something like MDMA or Nigel Thompson, right? Any other questions? Yes. So the question is, what can you do to help ordinary people? You're not ordinary people. You're very special people. <laughs> you, you know, because you, <laughs> you've, you know, I mean, you've, you know, you've taken a whole hour out of your precious every time to come and listen to me. I'm, I'm very, very, I'm very touched by that, and you, uh, and I, I think it's. Um, I would like you, how many of you follow me on Twitter?? How many of you know what Twitter is? <laughs> you could write it in the mud, I think you know then it, uh, no okay, so i 'd like you to all follow me on Twitter, Prof david Nutt. that 's pretty easy isn 't it? Yeah. because that way, I can tell you with, what issues are happening, when things are going on, and I think i 'd also like you to, to follow drug science, drug science. when I was sacked by the government from the ACMd i I, I realized that. That something had to be done, because it once, once I'd gone, there was no voice. Uh, I, I was pretty certain that the people that followed me on the ACMD would not dare step out of line, because they'd seen what happened to me and they would have they been cowed by it. So I thought, we've got to do something different. So I decided what to do. was well, I set up a charity called Drug Science. So you can follow Drug Science. It's online. And if you want, you know, if you like things like what we do, you can donate. It's a charity. It gets by on things like my lecture fees and, and donations, follow us. Because we, we are beginning to develop a, a kind of campaign which, which at the very least will educate people. The great thing about drug science is it's now where journalists go. If journalists want to know about drugs, they come to drug science. And I'm inundated, as I say. Three or four times a day I get a journalistic inquiry to do something. Um, and the more power of drug science the more we can we can actually be the the voice and if we have the voice it's much harder for newspapers like the sun or the mail to lie about drugs because if other journalists ring us up and they say what's the truth we tell them the truth so if we've got to stop the the disinformation that's been so powerful in terms of driving drug policy so that's the first thing you the second thing you can do is there's a book called drugs without the hot air have you heard any of you heard of that you've got it good drugs without the hot air good Then, next time, if I'm here next year and you're here next year, could you all bring your copies so I could sign them, please, right? That's a very important book because that book supports my charity. All the proceeds go to my charity. I wrote it, by the way, in case you are wondering who the author was. um, And that's the book that you, most of you, should give to your parents. Some of you perhaps not. Some give to your children. but, But most of you give to your parents, right? Give them to your parents and say... Mom, Dad, this is your Christmas present. This book will change the way you think about drugs. And by the way, if there's anything you don't understand, speak to me and I'll explain it to you. So you want to begin a dialogue with your parents as well as, as, well as educating them. And use that book as a template for having this dialogue because we need to have a dialogue. There is, you know, there is so much misinformation from supposed reputable sources like newspapers that we have to challenge it. And, and I can't, ch- you know, I do my best but if all of you are challenging it, if all, every time someone lies about drugs, you say, hang on, but read the book. Go on the drug site, okay? You have to shout, I can't... Yeah, what do you say to young children? No, this is really... There's a chapter in it. Yeah, no, no, no. There's a chapter in it, and I start with four. I think children need to learn... Of, one of the saddest things we have in this country, the last government rem- removed any directive They remove any rec- any requirement to teach about drugs at school that's disgusting you know the only the only app materials that teachers teachers don't have to teach about schools don't have to teach about drugs at all if they want to teach about drugs the only free material they can get is provided by the scientologists <laughs> and they they give a lot out it's outrageous. There is no government-sponsored support for it. Well, it's one of the things drug science wants to do. If I get funding, we would set up a schools program. But you've got to start before. Look, as soon as children see their parents usually being drunk or stoned, they need to know what's going on. A lot of kids at four or five will be going to school hungry because their mother's drunk and hasn't woken up. or They'll be beaten up by their we need Kids need to know about drugs from the very early... because it impinges on so many people's lives. So the book is in there. What do you say to a five-year-old? Well, you tell them that people get intoxicated and they, and they can do bad things, and if, they, if, they're, you know, if they're getting beaten up by a drunk father, then they should talk to the, to the school. You know, at, at every age, you should be approaching the truth. I and mean, one of the, I mean, people will say, people say that well, education, drugs education doesn't work, yeah. what they mean is drugs education doesn't stop people taking drugs. Well, that's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is stop people being harmed by drugs. And this is one of the worst things. That you, for the last 10 years, we've had both this current government, the last government, and the last Labour government. Their drugs policy, which we opposed continuously, had the sole measure, the sole measure of success, was how many people use drugs. And I would say to them, and this is why I got sacked, well, look, hang on, does that include alcohol? No. Why not? Because it's not a drug. Okay. Why do you want to stop people using drugs? Because they're harmful. But if they're less harmful than alcohol, won't we reduce net, net harm? Uh, we're not going to talk about that. Or we're going to lie about it. So, so the, we, the premise is that we, if we stop people using drugs, there will be less harms. So I say to them now, right, okay, so this, you think people, there's less use of drugs. Okay, well, why, how come... Deaths from cocaine reached a whole an all-time um, all high last year. Deaths from heroin are going up. How come that's happening? If you're, and there is no, there is no relationship between use and harm, because what we're doing is we're actually increasing the harms of drugs in the in the, the people who are using by these policies we've adapted and having it all in the black market. So I mean, so I suppose the bottom line is you've got to have a more rational government. Now there is hope. Don't don't give up. The, The Lib Dems, some of you may know, some of you may know, they did exist. There's eight of them left. And there's one other, there's a green lady called Lucas from Brighton. Six six of the Lib Dems and and Caroline Lucas have endorsed a policy document, legalising cannabis, that I helped put together, which was endorsed by the Lib Dem Spring Assembly. And there will be a debate in Parliament about it, so we've got seven MPs that are openly supporting legal cannabis. Make damn sure, those of you who are in their constituencies, you vote for them, please. One more? So yeah, So the question is, how can we use social media to try to promote and develop the, 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 uh, the vision of drug science? I should say, it's important. Drug science is a charity. It's not just me. I've got a whole group of real experts, almost all the experts on drugs in Britain or on drug science. Unfortunately, that's one of the reasons the government's laws on drugs are so bad, because even when, you know, they don't even make the laws correct. They're not even chemically correct. The latest law on cannabis you might be interested in, on synthetic cannabinoids, the latest uh, proposed law on synthetic cannabinoids, uh, currently captures something like 35 licensed medicines under this act. The government doesn't even know his own laws; so he doesn't even understand what it's doing. So, because most of the experts work for drug science, so we are communicating. With, so, I tweet. Drug science has a website. We do Facebook. At some point, we will have a campaign, and so we're going to. What I'm trying to do now, I think the key issue, the big for us in this country at present, is a technical issue, and it's about how we can get cannabis, medical cannabis, available, and and it all it takes is for the Home Secretary to write a letter, write what's called a statutory instrument, and say that cannabis is no longer a Schedule 1 drug, which means you have to have a special licence, which takes a year and costs £5,000 to hold it, but it's a Schedule 2 drug alongside heroin. So we could store cannabis alongside heroin in our pharmacies and not worry too much, because if people are going to break into that pharmacy, they're not going to take the cannabis, are they? If we make cannabis a Schedule Two drug, like the Americans are almost certainly gonna do this year, that would make it a medicine, and add a stroke, and it would, doesn't, even make, doesn't even need a vote of pardon. We can just have a, the Home Secretary saying, yep, yeah, there's enough evidence, it's a medicine, let's put it back in the medical category, Schedule II. and or immediately, that would happen. So we need a campaign for that, and everyone should, if we start a campaign, you should really sign up for that. When, you know, At some point, there's, that's going to happen, 100,000 people have signed the campaign, the petition called Ease Our Pain, at least over 100,000, so there will be a debate in Parliament about cannabis and medicine, and then I think we should do the same for psilocybin, because we've now got this good evidence of its value in depression, and MDMA as a medicine for post-traumatic stress disorder, and I think if we could all push for just those three drugs to be put in, out of Schedule 1 into Schedule 2, we could really make a huge difference to a lot of people of well, us. So follow me again on Twitter, please. I want to see at least another 1,000 signed up tonight. Last question. Do I think Brexit's going to make any difference? Well, it's, it's going to make a difference in a number of ways. It's certainly a distraction. One thing about Europe, whatever you think about Brexit, the European Directorate of Justice, they developed a policy five years ago based on the harm scale that we developed. And they said all new drugs should be assessed under the harm scale and if they're very harmful they should be criminalized if they're moderately harmful they should be subject to civil sanctions and they're not they're not harmful they should be legal and our government my scale and the government our government said no we are not interested in doing anything that Europe are doing on drugs and of course we've gone on now to make everything illegal even if it's harmless so Europe was good for drugs because Europe is rational. Most European countries, particularly Netherlands, Belgium now, Spain, Portugal, they have much more rational drug policies. So I think Brexit could actually make things worse because if we end up being controlled by these ultra-Puritan right-wing American lobby groups, it could be more problematic. But who knows? I mean, So you know, I'm not optimistic, but, but don't give up because you never know. Something, you know, there might be a chance for change. Oh, this guy's got his oh, last question. You'll have to say it a lot louder. My synthetic alcohol, well, this is an interesting... So it seemed to me over the... A few years ago, 10 years ago now, 11, um, I was writing a government report called the Foresight Report on Drugs and the Brain. And we were brainstorming for a year on the future of drugs. I spent most of my professional career actually working in the field of alcohol dependence. And for the first 20 years, I was trying to treat people with alcohol dependence. I was treat, trying to stop people being intoxicated, stop people craving, stop people dying of cirrhosis. And then during this brainstorming process, it kind of came to me, well, we can never do that. Alcohol is intrinsically toxic. For those of you who drink, there's only a few of you here, I see this is good, but let me just tell you, sir, if alcohol was treated like a food additive, suppose suppose one day, you know, you it was suppose alcohol didn't exist and suddenly you discovered this wonderful solvent which you could put into trifles to make them taste better. Yes, you said, I'm gonna make my fortune selling alcohol trifles. You'd go to the food standards agency and you'd say, uh, can I sell this? And they'd say, do toxicology testing. You do toxicology testing and you'd come back and you'd say, can I sell it? And they'd say, yes, you can sell alcohol. It is toxic. So the maximum exposure in a year For alcohol, if you treat it like other food additives, is a glass of wine per year. So we we know that we've known that for quite a long time. The reason we don't enforce those rules is because it's not a food additive; it's a food, and it's exempt. And that's the problem: we blind ourselves to alcohol. So, four million premature deaths a year from alcohol. We could get rid of almost all of those by replacing it. I know science; the science we've done could give us. It has given us. I've taken it. My wife has taken it. We had parties over Christmas. We've had synthetic. We've got alternatives to alcohol. They like alcohol, but they don't wash your liver and your gut and your brain, etc. And you don't get so much of a hangover. And they're reversible. And it's perfect. The question is, how do you develop it? And the answer is, in Britain, we can't develop it because, de facto, it is now illegal. So we are thinking about going overseas because... And you guys will just have to die of your liver cirrhosis, and the rest of the world can live on. Maybe that's a good point to end. Thank you all very much.
0: You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Unfortunately, Dr. Nutt's alcohol replacement beverage doesn't seem to have uh, made much headway since this talk was given. I did a quick search, and the last news report about it that I found was almost a year old. Nonetheless, I do hope that he can eventually bring it to market. Just imagine uh, being able to get a buzz on without worrying about liver damage or having a hangover the next day. And uh, I have to admit being taken aback when Dr. Nutt mentioned that his mother had just died the day before his presentation. Now, most of us have, uh, well, sadly, been involved in all that has to take place after someone close to us dies, and the fact that Dr. Nutt appeared at the festival as scheduled, even though everyone there would have understood had he not shown up, well, that speaks volumes about the quality of his character. Well, I'm going to sign off for now, and uh, in a couple of hours I'll be online in Zoom, visiting with some of our fellow saloners, and in two days I'll be back here online and play Graham Hancock's Glastonbury presentation for you. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.